Hello, everyone, and welcome to Top Stock, episode 32, and we thank you for listening in from whenever and wherever you are. I'm your host, Alex Birch. We have a jam-packed episode for you this week, which includes a discussion about our first digital-turned-physical product, Top's Bunt Baseball, as well as a talk about our Doctor Who Timeless set. But this episode mainly features my discussion with baseball broadcast journalist and now writer Brian Kenny. Brian was nice enough to call in to talk about his relationship with baseball cards and about the current state of statistics in the game. Brian recently published his first book called Ahead of the Curve, and we touch on that toward the end of our discussion. Look for it in stores or online now, and I highly suggest that you do. For our interview, we started off, of course, by going into how Brian got into the hobby of collecting cards. I was, uh, I guess I was nine or ten years old, and uh, we all collected baseball cards, me and all my friends, and I, I can still remember where I used to shop for them in, at the Nassau Mall uh, when I was growing up on Long Island, and uh, my first real card set was the, the 1971 Tops, the black borders, the beautiful black borders that I, I still own, and, um, you know, we would go get them in the packs. You know, pack by pack, that was before you could get a whole set. It was before you could get a whole series. So it was really old school. You just kept going back and getting new packs and getting that thrill and that rush of opening a a new card and seeing which players were revealed. What about the cards themselves were so was so exciting to you? I mean, I can obviously anyone who knows your work probably could guess that statistics on the back had a role in that. Yeah, I, I certainly did like that, but it was also, you know, at, at that age, I think that's even before I was, you know, really reading um, baseball and knowing the statistics. I had some knowledge of it, but nothing nothing special. It was just a way to, uh, and the way we all would interface with baseball. Um, you know, I, I would get season previews. I would get the Street and Smiths. Um, you know, there were, there were a couple of, uh, the, the Dell annual, there were, there were only a few things that you could get in the off season to, to prepare. And, and then during the season, you know, you got yearbooks and you followed it in the newspapers, um, and having baseball cards, you know, it was, a, it was a thing. It was more than just following the game. They were, they were cool in and of themselves just to have them, collect them, hold them, leaf through them. I used to put them out in, um, in order, like in a, a diamond order on my bed, you know, Johnny Bench would catch, uh, maybe I'd get John Mayberry uh, at first, Rod Carew at second, I would move everybody around, um, you know, I'd, you, know you, you could play with them, it was something to play with, and I, I always treasured them, I wouldn't put them in my spokes in my bicycle, I wouldn't flip them to try to win more, I, would, I wasn't looking to win anybody else's because I couldn't, I couldn't stand if I lost any of my own, so it was a thing, you know, as a, as a, a kid, you know, it was just something to play with. And uh, yeah, I did get to answer the question about the stats. I did have awareness of, of the stats on the back, you know, the triple crown stats. Cause I, I do remember like Johnny bench in that 71 set. Uh, that was his 1970 season. And they were outrageous, you know, it was 40 home runs, 145 RBIs, something like that. Um, and it was, I remember just thinking, wow, those are huge numbers. So I guess I did have a knowledge of it, and it was a way of following it, but basically it was just a cool thing to play with where it seemed like the players were coming alive. And what was the favorite design of yours that that you enjoyed? For nostalgia purposes, was it that first year that you were collecting, or did you have a favorite design that appeared later on? 
No, it was definitely the 71 set. And it might be a combination of things. It might be, you know, in my mind, you know, that's what a baseball card should look like. You know, it was the first one that I got. So it seemed, um, it seemed serious. It seemed, um, you know, like it had an official imprint for Major League Baseball. You know, that's what it should be. Because I know this because when the 1972 cards came out and it was a psychedelic era and they came out in all color, I, I think I bought one or two packs and I stopped. <laughs> I didn't, I did not get them that year because I just thought this is not what, these are not what baseball cards are supposed to look like. I really rejected them. I did not like them at all. And I just played with my 71s. Um, then, uh, I got back into it. I have seven, 1973, 1974. I got back into it and bought a ton, uh, those years. And by then I was, you know, out of my little league phase and I didn't collect them beyond that. Uh, but uh, until I was later, of course, like most people, when you become an adult and the, the memorabilia craze kicked back in. But yeah, that was the, the seventy ones. I thought were so right, so perfect that I completely rejected the nineteen seventy two set. <laughs> you know, that's understandable. And something that you said really makes a lot of sense, which is the fact that you know it was your first taste into collecting, and to you, that was the standard. And for so many people like that, they have such similar reactions where, you know, it, it was the, let's say, the first card that they pulled, uh, the first superstar that they saw, you know what, they want to latch on to this guy and collect a lot of him or the, a design that they latch on to. For you, do you collect a certain player? No, I, again, that was, um, those were the days where you really just, you opened up packs and that was it. Um you know, there was Tops, and then there was, I think there was also, like, some of those Kellogg's uh, cards that came out at that time, but Tops were definitely the baseball cards. And, uh, yeah, I knew of no other way, I, and I don't know if there was back then, to, you know, collect different players. It's just a matter of if you got doubles, you know, if you got a couple of doubles right. and you held on to them. But for me, they were to play with and to read and enjoy, and, um, yeah, I... I like there wasn't really a choice as for hey let me gather some rookie cards. I don't know if we even knew what rookie cards were. <laughs> you know, it was, just, it was you know you just you got a Mike Schmidt and you didn't know who he was. You just knew he kind of stunk. That's all you knew. <laughs> so there was no way of knowing. I, you just knew who the stars were, and you were excited when you got your you know the, the cards of the stars. So when do you remember a time when you were growing up that? The statistics on the back, besides obviously that you know that realization with Johnny Bench saying, "Oh my God, that's a crazy year." But was there a time that you remember when the importance of statistics started to really connect in your brain? Well, I think you know no more so than for for everybody else. Um, you know, I looked at the same numbers everybody else did. I guess it was a way of quantifying things, um, of just trying to know which players were the best. I actually did, you know, I have these like. Uh, little books, these little, uh, you know, booklets, notebooks uh, that I used to fill out. And I used to make my own lists of, uh, you know, of the top winners. You know, yes, I did win, wins and losses. Uh, <laughs> I, w- I, did, I will not I hold did, that against you. Yeah, I did not know any better. And I remember still this day, you know, Catfish Hunter, Jim Palmer. And so I used to make lists of the ERA leaders and the wins and loss leaders and then um, you know, home run leaders. I used to make lists of that. And, uh, you know, but like everybody else, that's what you did. You wanted to know who the best players were. You wanted, you wanted to know, you know, what type of year, you know, uh, Hank Aaron had or Pete Rose. You wanted to know what type of season they had or, you know, who was Rico Cardi or, or Joe Torre having these outrageous seasons. 
Uh, so no more than anybody else. I mean, we all spoke the language of, uh, of baseball statistics. Everybody, if you followed the game, you talked about, um, you know, this guy's hitting 300, he's having a great season, or he leads the league in home runs. You, that doesn't mean you're a stat freak. It means you're a baseball fan. For a lot of people as well, what they don't fully understand, and for mainly the younger generation, is that this was the main way to actually find these statistics in the first place because it's not like you could go on baseball reference on the Internet that wasn't going to exist for another 20 years. Yeah, that's true. And I used to get them from the magazines and from the baseball cards, but they weren't that um, they weren't readily accessible. Uh, the encyclopedia had come out at that point, the baseball encyclopedia, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't even aware of that. Again, as a kid following baseball, I didn't know about that stuff. I wasn't like, you know, aware of the Society of American Baseball Research, you know, when I was 13 or 14. I was just following the game like a fan. And, uh, yeah, to have the cards, it, it gave you an idea of who was who and why the great players were the great players. Uh, there's no doubt. That was, that was the way you connected with the game when there was many fewer games on TV. It was just your home teams, and that's it. Uh, there was no way to do any more research beyond what you could buy with magazines and everything else. So, yeah, you're right. You know, the, the cards were kind of a, a thing that was, was kind of alive for you, and it was a way of studying. And, of course, you, along with other people, graduated from cards to find out you know, different aspects of the game that statistics could play into. And when you had this awakening in your life to how important these different type of statistics are having in this game, I mean, what was that like for you? And when did that really happen? It happened for me, you know, it was kind of a gradual um, evolution. And I always loved the history of the game. I always studied it. I always was, you know, very interested in um, in the Hall of Fame and who were the greatest players and getting them ranked and, and figuring out who was who. And I would try to do as many comparisons as I could. And mainly, um, I finally, like when I was, I was a sportscaster at this point, again, I was really no different from anyone else except, you know, I always tried to put things into perspective for people during my sportscast when I was writing. So... I would come up with you know little tidbits of information, little you know things to pepper the highlights with, to, to talk about, and so that kind of drove me to a different way of quantifying it. And I finally, like, what put me over the top was when I bought a total baseball in 1991 or 1992, and in that was a chapter called Sabermetrics, and. In it, it had uh, an excerpt from The Hidden Game of Baseball, which was written by John Thorne and Pete Palmer. And there were kind of the keys to the kingdom. There as well, in the pages, was the slash line. You know, the first time I had seen batting average slash on base slash slugging. They also had a thing called Pro Plus, which was is like OPS Plus now, on base plus slugging. Park adjusted, league adjusted. Not that I really knew what it was, but I knew enough to think, hmm, that's a new way of stratifying the players. And then they had a thing at the end, total player average or total player rating, and that was like our modern wins above replacement. So they had all these things in there that it's not like I saw it and had this eureka moment, and I thought, oh, this is it, I've found it. But 
as I kept going back to it and kept looking at it, I kept realizing there's a different way of looking at this than what everybody else is looking at. And then, you know, one thing leads to another. Eventually, I start reading Bill James, uh, and there, that's when I started saying, wait a second, a lot of this stuff makes no sense. Why do we follow these things from the 19th century? Why don't we question these things? How much of this accepted wisdom is actual wisdom? So it was a gradual thing over, you know, say a seven to eight year period. And of course, now continues to this day. I constantly question what I think I know now as well. But that's where it all started as far as sabermetrics. Chris Vaccaro, Director of App Production here at Tops. Thank you again for joining me, sir. Great to be on the show. Always a pleasure. We, this is a really big week for uh, Tops Digital, the, uh, the apps division here at Tops. And the reason why is because, well, we are, quote-unquote, crossing over into the physical realm in multiple ways. Let's talk about the first way, the one that people have known about for a while now. That is Bunt Baseball 2016. It is a physical product that is coming out. It's a physical set that you can buy in stores, and it is of Bunt-inspired designs. And it, this is going to be a great step uh, for the Topps digital arm and also for the Topps company in general. Yeah, I think we continue to evolve what it is between the physical and digital products that Topps has to offer. And, you know, it started with code cards. It started with a small offering in packs where you could get a code and eventually log on to Bunt, for instance, and get access to a special digital pack. Now, that has taken the next step to a full physical product. I mean, the, the product is called Tops Bunt, which is literally, of course, the name of our app. And as you mentioned, inspired completely by our designs and our creative team. And Chris, this absolutely is a great step forward. And what's funny, at least from, from my point of view, is that you know we have had these apps for quite a long time. And so... While some might say, well, oh, wow, you know, a new idea gets even a, a newer wrinkle to it. But Topps Bunt has been around uh, for quite a while, especially in the apps world. Yeah, four and a half years now. Uh, April 2012 is when we launched. It's the oldest of our apps. Uh, of course, baseball and Tops has been synonymous for decades. So the fact that this is the first product that we turn from mobile into physical makes a lot of sense. Uh, we have a great relationship with Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association. Uh, and just the creative teams inside our company, from, from the digital side and from the physical side, different brand managers, different creative directors and artists, everyone put their heads together and said, this is the right time to do this now. And we're doing it for the fans. There are millions of fans that have Tops apps around the world. They know our brand names. They know what we're doing from a digital perspective. So to take that now and give them a physical offering... It just makes sense. And let's talk about Tops Crossover. This is another really big step for the department and also for the e-commerce department here, the website here at Tops. And Tops Crossover has not only to do with printing digital cards and turning digital cards into ones you can physically hold in your hand, but it's the different types of these physical cards, these, the different types of these cards from the different apps that we have. 
Yeah, it's uh, pretty funny and ironic that we're doing all this in the same week. Uh, when we planned the original Bunt physical set to be released um, you know, the week of August 17th, it, we had no idea that Topps crossover was a thing. You know, th- That's something more recent in the last month or two that we've developed, and it just so happens to be the same week. And so this isn't just a baseball idea or a cross campaign with, with digital and .com. Uh, this is going to touch on all of our different sports and entertainment properties, and Again, same idea. Beautiful, beautiful designs and cards that you can collect in our apps. Now, every week, there'll be at least one six-card set where you can get a physical version of it. And we're going to rotate between our different properties. You know, we'll do some stuff with soccer. We're hopefully going to do some stuff with Star Wars and Walking Dead and, and WWE. There's just so many different properties that we have. And, you know, again, I'll, I'll praise these guys forever. Our designers really, they make art. It is beautiful work they're doing, and to get it physically now to coincide with the collectibles that we have in our apps, perfect timing, great campaign. Again, we're looking really forward to to diving into this. The win, obviously, is is one of the most like bare bones, easy to understand statistic, but also because it's so simple it has become such a complex thing to continue to keep in the game and i mean the win obviously means if you were if you won the game or not but when baseball first was going on and when statistics were first being you know infused into the game a pitcher would start and a pitcher would finish the game and you would either get the win or you get the loss because clearly you'd be on either side but of course since the advent of relief pitchers the changes of how those relief pitchers were used. The win has become, as Brian, I'm sure, is about to mention, pretty much an irrelevant statistic. Well, yeah, I look at wins as kind of an early uh, attempt at sabermetrics. Interesting. What they were trying to do at the time in giving one player a win, you know, which is separate from the actual win for the team, is just to give someone an extra gold star is to try to figure out that, hey, who, um, who are the better pitchers? How good are we on the day that that guy is pitching? You know, whoever it is, the big sure. colonel or whoever, you know, big red or whoever <laughs> it is that's up there. Right. Fingers and, and you have to kind of You kind of have to understand the, the beginning, the real beginnings of the game in the mid-1800s to kind of get a grip on this. Because it started with, you not only had one pitcher start and finish a game, you would have one pitcher. Or you would have anybody pitch because the pitcher was just there to throw the ball. It's kind of like t-ball. Throw the ball to the batter, and then let's have a game where the batter hits the ball, guys, fielders are out there with no gloves, and you'll run around the bases until you can stop them. So it used to be you threw the ball at the guy, and he, that would stop him. Right, you know, it was right. real rudimentary. You know, it's playground stuff, basically, what we would think of. But that was baseball where, hey, you could ask up till I don't know the exact year, but at some point in the 1860s, I believe, you at that point you could uh, still ask uh, for where you wanted the ball from the pitcher because hmm. the pitcher's job was just to deliver it to the batsman, and the batsman would put it into play, and then it all, you know, all excitement would break loose. Um, then, you know, eventually they were like, all right, let's let pitchers you know, actually pitch. Let's let them now... Throw, you know, bring their arm, their elbow over their shoulder so they could throw it a little harder. Now you can put a little snap on the ball. So it really developed into something different. And you know, if you bring yourself back, 
think of that transition where you just have someone on the mound that's basically just delivering the ball. Now you're having a guy throw hard every time he's out there, throw a little, and try to get the batter out. There weren't that many walks. They didn't want to have walks. It was seen as just a mistake by the pitcher. But at a certain point, if it got ridiculous, they would give you a base just to punish you and say, hey, get the ball over the plate. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just putting the ball in play was the big thing. The strikeouts were very infrequent. That's not where it was. It was throw the ball, hit it, and now all the action would start. So go from that point to where now you had a different pitcher on different days. At that point, they were trying to think, hmm, on this day when this guy pitches, we seem to be a lot better. I wonder what his record is. You know, I wonder how much better we are. So I think it was a real search for quantification way back then to give some pitchers, you know, more or less credit depending on how they performed. To bring this into the modern day discussion, I mean, one of the reasons why this really doesn't make sense anymore is my favorite hypothetical situation, which is when a pitcher, let's say a starting pitcher, throws eight innings of a game, is it's a shutout so far, it's one nothing, and then the a, a closer comes in, supposed to finish the game, the game's supposed to be one nothing, and we should walk home, you know, with a shutout under our belt. Well, the closer then gives up two runs, or even just a run, go to the bottom of the ninth inning, and then the home team walks off. Who gets the win? Not the guy who throws eight shutout innings and should have gotten the win, but it's the closer who almost ruined everything. So that is, to me, like the biggest example of why this absolutely makes no sense anymore. But yet there's still this nostalgic feel of it of like, wow, a guy's that 20-win mark. Oh, man, that is, that's it. That's a starting pitcher. But it's that romanticism still with those round big old numbers and it, it doesn't apply I, I i try to tell people why do we keep statistics in the first place why do we value them why do we quote them it's because we believe them to have meaning we believe statistics have a correlation to performance there are a lot of people who say oh you know you know a lot of people advanced baseball people say you're going to go by era are you kidding me the variance of the batted ball, the defense, all these things that you're going to, you know, they believe ERA has a loose correlation to performance. I'm, I'm granting them that. There, there is a lot of luck. There, there is a lot of dependence on defense, no question. So, and I'm fine with that. But if you are saying, hey, ERA is not that applicable to pitching and, you know, it really is kind of squirrely as far as assessing a pitcher's performance, well, then for, you better not be quoting wins. Because wins and law, the win-loss record has such a loose correlation to performance. And I'll give you an example. I know this, people don't understand this. If a guy walks off the mound having pitched seven full innings, giving up just two runs, we would give him applause. We would clap for him and say, hey, good job. The guy did an excellent job. It's better than a quality start. It's a very good start. His ERA, if he did that all season long, would be 2.57 which in most years would be excellent, top 10, maybe lead the league in some years. It's a very good ERA. Seven innings, two runs. That's excellence in Major League Baseball. Just a, you know, If you go over the last three years, guys pitching seven innings and giving up two runs would not get a win almost 40% of the time. Wow. So not, not quite half, but about 38% of the time, he would pitch those excellent innings, 2.57, almost a league-leading ERA, and almost 
40% of the time, he would not get a win. That's over the last, like, say, three years. I understand so that. Think, As a Mets fan, I get it. <laughs> I get right, well, I'll, give you, I'll give you another Met example. Uh, Matt Harvey, uh, his first year when he broke in, yep. was basically neck and neck with Clayton Kershaw in all baseball statistics, all pitching statistics. It, it was him and Kershaw at the very top in terms of, like, everything. Um, he had, I, I believe, I'm, I'm working on my memory here, though it's in my book this year, I believe he had seven starts where he had uh, an ERA of one where he didn't get one single win. Not one win. <laughs> seven starts with an ERA of one did not get a win. Now, we all know that there's a little hard luck involved. Like, we accept that. Oh, sure. a little hard luck. But when you start counting it, you'd be astounded as to how much hard luck there is. And for Matt Harvey, at the end of his season, when he went 9-5, and five, it's like those seven starts don't even exist. It really is true. It's, I mean, it's, it's gone. It's, it's erased from history. And at the end of his career, Alex, when he finishes with 262 wins, let's guess, uh, who knows, let's say it's 262 wins, those seven starts do not exist they're gone. He gets zero credit. Nothing is the wins loss. The ERA, yes. Um, also, a strikeout percentage, yes. Everything you know mounts to that. But those starts, and that's seven in his, seven starts in his rookie year. So you can imagine now how often that happens to all sorts of pitchers. And when I started charting it day to day, and I called it the day in the W. And I started putting it on MLB Now because I was trying to convince Harold Reynolds, no, these things don't work. Wins, no. <laughs> and, he, and he maintained, no, 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 no. The wins, you know, I know certain pitchers that will pitch for a win and some guys who just can't know, they don't know how to win. And I was trying to convince him. And I, I really thought, and this is where I learned something. I thought, I'm going to show Harold because I'm going to show him that there's three or four starts a day where a guy pitches really well and doesn't get a win. And what I found was, it could be from anywhere from, say, 3 to 12 performances a night. Sometimes I would have 8 to 10 starts, 12 starts, where it was, hey, here's 12 starts, 2.3 ERA, no wins. Here's 6 starts, 1.05 ERA, no wins. Every day I thought, wow, because, and you know this if you play fantasy baseball, you realize you'll have all your pitchers pitching great, and then at the end of the day you go, oh, come on, what happened? I got no wins. It happens all the time. Yeah, and that's why a lot of I mean fantasy leagues are just not even going to consider the win anymore. And so in and in this case where fantasy become could become reality, what is a statistic that listeners can pay attention to that you know obviously it's not going to be as kind of quote unquote cut and dry as the win, but it's a a really good way for and a new stat or a newer stat if you will. Uh, that I, well, they could follow. It, well, I would, I would say if, if people just want to follow ERA, look at the innings mm-hmm. pitched in the ERA. I mean, that tells you most of the story. Um, you can, if you want to project future performance, or maybe a guy had a bit of hard luck, or maybe has a bad defense, um, say a guy like Chris Sale, who was, you know, ERA was higher than you thought, and I'm like, oh, that's not that good. You can look at his FIP, his fielding independent pitching, which are his strikeouts, his walks, and, and uh, his home runs allowed. Um, you know, even that's a little outdated now, but it, it's fine. It definitely leads you in the right direction as to what he's controlling, what he's most able, at least, to control. So I would tell any fan that's like, oh, if I don't have wins, what am I going to do? ERA and innings. That's all that, that tells you the story. You're, you know, last year, Jake Arrieta, Zach Greinke, 
Clayton Kershaw, what told you they were great? I don't even know what their wins and losses were, but their ERAs were all at 177, 166, they were 2.13. They were astounding. That's what tells you it. Now, and beyond that, I could say, hey, look, how about runs allowed per nine war? That puts it every, that does a formula for you to give you a, a sum, a number that tells you how many innings pitched, how many runs did the pitcher allow in terms of a war number. And at least you could make a list of your top 20, and that top 20 would not be stunning to you. It would be all the great pitchers that you're thinking of, and there'd be lots of pitchers in there that have bad wins, wins and losses. That, that, that's really meaningless. Uh, but I tell people, look, ERA was you know, uh, in place by 1910. It's, it's fine. It really tells you a good part of the story. Just look at that and drop the wins and losses. <laughs> well, I'm with you. You can you can put me down as part of your camp that uh, that the win needs to go. What, just quickly, I have a question. What is your opinion on the on the save? Oh, I don't even have to. I mean, uh, uh, I don't even have to bother with that, right? <laughs> I, don't I mean, think so. <laughs> I mean, we know we know this. The, the thing that's astounding about the save is that it actually drives strategy. Yeah, I know. It made, it made things easier for managers who are looking to avoid blame. And it makes it makes it much easier, and it really set baseball back quite a bit. I'm sure Jerome Holtzman, you know, the Chicago sports writer who was looking to do better sabermetrics and and, and put the save into place, um, he I'm sure he would have no idea that he was actually going to influence the game itself, and it would drive everybody toward this stat. That's the irony of this: that you know, people who study sabermetrics are called stat heads and. You know, say, hey, you got to, you know, get your head out of the books and, and, and watch the games once in a while. Well, what's a manager doing when, you know, a, a pitcher, you know, has a three run lead or a team has a three run lead and he has his best pitcher up there uh, warming up and then he gets a four run lead and he sits him down? You know, th- that he's just adjusting to the stat rule, yeah. uh, the save rule. So if he's following these stats, like these guys are the mindless stat freaks, which is, <laughs> it's staggering how they actually do this, but this is the way the game has been played. It, it is powerful, and I'm stunned that, that teams still do it. I, I, there's a, a bunch of reasons, and I think it really still is not just the save rule, but it made, it made it accepted to play the game this way. And that way, there's all sorts of moments in the sixth, seventh, eighth inning when the game is on the line, and it is much harder to be a major league manager and figure out when those moments are and bring in your best relief pitcher, uh, it's much more difficult to do that than just say, hey, I'm saving this guy for the ninth inning or at the very most one or two outs in the eighth inning in a dire situation. It makes it much more of a push-button game and allows you to skate free without making the tough decisions. It's true, and also it has to do with money. I mean, now, I mean, people, you know, closers want their saves because that means more money, apparently. I think that's already passed. I, you think? Yes, that was definitely the case through the years. Uh, I'll give you an example. We do a thing called Top Ten right now in the offseason on, on MLB Network. Yes, I've seen and, this. And even the guys who are doing, the ex-major leaguers who do the show now, who start you know ranking relief pitchers, they almost never, and I'll say almost never, but they almost never look at saves because they know um, that a, 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 a very good relief pitcher can have 33 saves or 51 saves in any given year. And it really has very little to do with them. Mariano Rivera was never, even though he's the all-time save king, it took him his whole career to get there. He didn't pile up monster numbers. I don't know how many times he even led the league in saves, but it wasn't that often. So he just didn't have the opportunities. And we understand that 
Um, I, I would I would say one thing that you can look into it. Look, I, I don't toss anything aside. You know, Mark Melanson last year I think was fifty one for fifty three in save opportunities. Um, I would say, look, that stat while being kind of a you know a, a throwaway stat, that does tell you something. It tells you that. They put him in this position to do this job. And as far as that job was concerned, he was excellent. And there's value in that. And that's why I say, for the most part, I know Dan Plesak did the show with me. He was a former relief pitcher for like 17, 18 years. Yeah. And he, he rarely, he, that's about the only time. And I agree with that. When you say, hey, look, this is the job. This guy's job is to get the ninth inning save. And if you do that 51 out of 53 times, well, that's excellent. I mean, there's no, uh, no two ways about it. If the guy has a lot of blown saves, that also can indicate something. It's just more, it's kind of a poor way of calculating it. And to me, I'd rather just, you know, not even count it at all. I mean, to your point, while I, I definitely think that the save is, is pretty silly, because, I mean, it doesn't really matter who ends the game. It should just be the guy who's most ready and most prepared. But when Brad Lidge went perfect in 2008, I still think that's one of the most like incredible feats of the last 15 years, that he just, every single time he went in there, he did not blow a save, including in all throughout the postseason. So, like, that's something No, no that... doubt. And there's, there's the, I think the Randy, My- Randy Myers had a season like that. And, uh, you know, a lack of failure is success. So that is one way of measuring it. But it's not the best way of measuring it. You know, if we went year by year, I don't even know, like, how many saves did Koji Uihara have you know, in those uh, great years that he had with Boston. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I, there's, you know, Trevor Hoffman, you know, were there years where, um, you know, he blew a bunch of saves or he had a high total saves or and didn't have his best year. Other years he was just, you know, fantastic as far as his run prevention, uh, but he had only 29 or 33 saves. It's a poor way of calculating it. And uh, the reason I don't even, I don't even make it a, a, a real, you know, real driving force in, in any of the things that I do on MLB Network is because people know this. People know saves are not a good way to rank relief pitchers. They're not, it, it, there's, not a, a, there's a correlation, but it's not a, it's not a very good correlation uh, between performance and the statistic. People understand that now, and that's what I try to get across with, with wins because I don't think people understand that. But saves are kind of easy pickings because we see, as you cited an example, there's all sorts of ludicrous examples of, of guys getting saves or late wins or vulturing a win where it just makes no sense whatsoever. Mark Von Olin, brand manager of entertainment. Good to have you back, my friend. Thanks for having me, Alex. Let's talk about Timeless. And when I'm not talking about the word. I'm talking about the product, Doctor Who Timeless. Go into the new product that is out right now. Yeah, uh, Doctor Who is one of my favorite properties, and it was so exciting that we picked up this license and are now able to make some fantastic products uh, for all of the Whovians out there. Uh, this one is is one that's going to speak to fans of the series old and new. It's comprehensive. It captures the Doctor's greatest adventures across time, primarily. So he'll still be traveling off-world and encountering some awesome aliens. But really, we made this a very time-travel-focused set. Uh, there's 100 base cards, starting out with uh, the very first episode, An Unearthly Child, and it goes in air date order. Um, we wanted to do it in chronological order, and that just became a fiasco. Um, it's impossible to uh, sort of put... If, if someone out there wants to try, like you can put these in... 
uh, I guess, in the Whovian time stream order. That is a project in and of itself. Yeah, and if you do that out there, please document that and then tweet at us. Absolutely. At, yeah, either at Tops Talk or at Tops Cards. I mean, that would be... I want to give them something for that. We'll have to talk about that off air. <laughs> I, no, I have a prize. I have a prize ready. If you can, if, who, who, the Whovian out there who sends me the base cards in chronological order um, will get a fantabulous Topps Doctor Who prize. I promise. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. All right, Mark. Let's yep. get back on topic. Yep. About the product. So, the, aside from the hundred base cards and uh, cool parallels to Chase, there's also five different insert sets. So we've got the Doctors Across Time, featuring all thirteen of the Doctors. So the twelve numbers plus the War doctor um our uh historical figures so people like queen elizabeth and marco polo again it covers like, the entire range of the series uh time travelers like the master and his many incarnations including missy um and river song i think everyone's favorite time traveler potentially it's, it's her or captain jack um the two of them can fight it out for first place uh the daleks across time which really captures uh who i think to be the the doctor's number one enemy across the series old and new and all of their appearances and then Companions Across Time featuring some of our fan-favorite companions um, and their exciting adventures as they travel across time. And I know something that you really want to talk about is the, the signing aspect of this, and it's a huge amount. It's a crazy autograph signer list. It's 78 people, um, which is incredible. It's a wide list. It actually includes seven doctors. So we've got uh, David Tennant, who is returning from uh, last year, Tom Baker, Peter Davison, Colin Baker, Paul McGann, and then new signers, Sylvester McCoy and John Hurt. So seven of the doctors. Uh, plus, we've got uh, a bunch of other great new signers like Jenna Coleman as Clara Oswald, Arthur Darville as Rory Williams, John Sim as the Master. We've got Ingrid Oliver, Nick Frost, Russell Tovey, Michelle Gomez, Anthony Stewart Head. It goes on and on. And then some of our signers who are returning from the last set, uh, the big names um, like our key companions in those, uh, Billy Piper, Alex Kingston, Freema Azerman, Noel Clark, John Barrowman. Um, it is incredibly comprehensive. And in fact, we'll make sure we get you the checklist so you can see just how cool the list is. Yep. And uh, you'll be able to find that, uh, that checklist as well on tops.com. So, Mark, let's go into the relics part of this product. Yeah, we, we were very fortunate uh, from the BBC to get a wide array of costumes to use in this product. So we actually have eight authentic screen-worn costumes from the modern series of Doctor Who. We actually have the 11th Doctor's soccer shirt um, from that off awesome episode uh, where he actually meets up with um, Craig Owens, played by the hysterical James Corden, um, which, by the way, little tease for the next product coming out. James Corden will be signing autographs for Doctor Who extraterrestrial encounters coming this November. Wow. Yeah. Oh, his Carpool autographs are karaoke famed. Yeah, exactly. James um, he's he's hysterical and he's a great actor. He's the best. Um, you know, History Boys, Broadway shows. He's got a Tony. Um, One of my favorite moments of of doing this podcast was talking to Russell Tovey about James Corden and how just he just loves him so much. Oh, they're still they're still good friends. Um, and in fact, I think Dominic Cooper keeps up with him too, who was just in Warcraft and now is on Preacher. So those History Boys are taking over. I saw that show oh, like yeah. 10 years Me ago too. or whatever was, it was. We might have seen um, the same time. <laughs> it was awesome. And I got to tell you that those alumni, there's a reason they're taking over the planet. Yeah. Um, but so back to the costumes. So um, Matt Smith's soccer shirt, the 10th Doctor's uh, brown suit trousers, the 10th Doctor's blue shirt, um, which is a very rare piece, uh, Rose Tyler's Union Jack t-shirt, River Song's black dress, the headless monk robe, which is super cool when you see it, uh, Rory Williams' green striped shirt from the Utah episode. So if you remember that whole series with the silence, he's got that um, yep. that green polo that I definitely did not try on. Um, <laughs> 
And then we've got an Oud costume. I'm not cutting that out, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, Sally Sparrow's coat. We still have some pieces from the, the iconic episode, Blink, um, starring oh, Carrie yeah. Mulligan. I mean, that's kind of the most, uh, you'd have to think that's the most famous episode ever. I, absolutely. Yeah, I always like tell people, far. if you have not seen Doctor Just Who, start that. with Blink. It's not like know. a lot of other, it's really kind of unlike any other episode, though. So, like, it's weird. Like, you want to suggest that, but at the same time, you're like, I don't know. If you want to really get into like quintessential Doctor Who. But anyway, that's yeah. a, that's its talk. We could do a whole time. thing yeah, on Blink. Not, um, yeah, let's not even get into that. <laughs> no, the angels are actually one of my favorite aliens. And yeah, in fact, um, we'll have them prominently featured in Extraterrestrial Encounters. Nice. And in fact, the woman who plays the lead angel, Sarah Louise Madison, has signed autographs for this set. So we are covered. Um, I should mention, too, about the costumes. We also have five autograph pieces. So David Tennant, Billy Piper, Alex Kingston, Arthur Darville, and Silas Carson, who does the voice of the Ood. You may know him from Star Wars. Um, all five of them have autograph versions of their costume pieces in the product as well. So some really low-numbered, high-value chase items for you guys. And finally, where can people get this product? Yes, so you've got a couple of different options. This is out now in hobby shops, comic book stores, um, distributors nationwide. You can also find a special SKU in Toys R Us and in Barnes & Noble. And if you really want to be lazy, just go to tops.com. We've got the value boxes up there, which include four packs plus a guaranteed medallion card. Lazy, I would say... Smart. Smart, yes. When we talk about New Age statistics, the statistic of war is obviously at the forefront of people's thoughts. And do you think that we have far to go from war? Do you think that war tells only part of the story? Or do you think that this is a pretty great stat that we can hold on to for a while? It, no, it's very useful. I mean, the best stat would be just some sort of total player rating. It doesn't have to be the economic model that war is, you know, like how much uh, war does tell you, you know, at least tries to tell you how much a player is worth, meaning, well, I'll tell you what, Alex, I'm not even going to get into it. I'll say this. You know what war does for me, and I think does for the average fan is, it throws defense and base running into the mix. Mm. That's all. That's all. Because we can say, hey, Alex Gordon, we know he's a great player. Ben Zobrist is a great player. Jason Hayward is a great player. Um, or, you know, um, Albert Pujols in his heyday, they were great players. Um, well, how great? You know, we, we kind of want to know. And where does that come from? And, okay, that's hitting. Uh, when we're watching a game, we recognize how important base running is, and we're still coming to grips with, like, just how important defense is. I mean, we should be learning from the Kansas City Royals, right? They're winning. The ball isn't hitting the ground in the outfield. There seems to be real value there. So, we all pay lip, including me. I do this too. I did it for years. You pay lip service to defense, and then when it comes to awards or ranking players, you kind of give it the short shrift. You, you don't maybe not ignore it, but you go, yeah, that guy's a, a a really nice player, and he's a good defender. You know, like good little, he's a good little defender. And then you kind of drop it when you're talking about MVP. Well, war forces you to confront a number. It forces you to look at Jason Hayward and say. That guy is as valuable as a lumbering, slugging first baseman who doesn't run our field. And we all have in our heads, well, no, he can't be good as good as, um, I don't know, who's, who's a good example? Prince Fielder, let's say. You know, like in the old days, we would look at Prince Fielder and Jason Hayward, and we would think, 
Prince Fielder is a is a great hitter and a great player. And Jason Hayward is this you know kind of disappointing hitter and a and a good fielder though, nice little fielder. We really do like that about him. Well, <laughs> and we would all have that bias. Yet uh, because of you know the power, the sexy things that we see, the home runs, the RBIs, the big hits, uh, the mammoth home runs. But then, if you're forced to look at Fielder's a four win player and Hayward's a six win player, it forces you to actually confront. Hey. Maybe all that defense, maybe all that defense does make him as valuable as Prince Fielder, who is a real liability in the field and a real liability on the base path. If, if we're watching a baseball game and we're watching it, you know, minute by minute and seeing it unfold and watching Prince Fielder and Jason Hayward play, we would all recognize, wow, Hayward has a lot of ways to beat you and Prince Fielder has one. But at the end of the day, we would say, yeah, yeah, nice little fielder, big slugger. War forces you to confront that the fielding and the base running and actually quantify it, and then it forces baseball to pay for it. We wouldn't have even brought up base running. I mean, that, I mean, we at least would have talked about fielding, but never would have brought up base running unless that was like huge. his one thing. It, by, and by the way, it's, it's huge. Anytime we look at it we, and we see a guy, like when we're watching the playoffs, um, what's the one thing that people were saying about the Tigers when I, you know, I mentioned Prince Fielder, but you know, talking about the Tigers was, when they got, you know, I'm not into clogging the bases, but it does matter a bit when you have Prince Fielder and Miguel Cabrera getting outs on the bases, as opposed to another team like Lorenzo Cain going from first to home, you know, on a hit to Jose Batista. <laughs> it matters a lot. It's quantifiable. These, these are the things that we get caught up with. Like, hey, uh, he does the little things. These are not little things. Going from first to home on a, you know, a single or a double, that's not a little thing. That's a big thing. And so, again, I point to the Royals because it's fresh in our minds. Think of the base running. Think of the defense. It matters a lot. Yeah, I was standing right there for Duda's throw, and uh, it <laughs> doesn't escape me how important yeah, base running you ha- and, they, and you know what's interesting? We can mind that a little bit, because Hosmer's a first baseman, right? Yep. But he's a first baseman who can run a little bit. He's not stealing 40 bases. He's not a speedster, but he can run a little bit. So he made that brilliant move thinking, okay, you got to make two good throws to get me out as opposed to you know, my next hitter driving me in. I think I'll take the chance. And he was able to. Now, again, that's base running. That matters a lot. It wasn't just luck. It was a bad throw. But you knew, again, if I'll, I'll use Prince Fielder. If that's Prince Fielder on third, he's standing there. He's not going anywhere. Because oh, yeah. he can't beat you that way. Eric Hosmer, just being a little bit athletic and still young, he can beat you that way. I mean, to me, I think war is such uh, it's it's such an awesome statistic now, especially since it gets us closer and closer to basically creating like a Madden rating for everybody. And I think mm-hmm. that's why this generation is really taking to it, because it's basically like a player rating. And 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 until that time comes when we actually have a player rating right now, it seems like war is is the closest thing to it. Yeah. And it's always going to be complicated uh, I'm always stunned to hear people say, it's not even a stat. I can't, I, can't, I can't figure it out on my own, so what good is it? And it's like, are you joking? Like, can you build a car engine? You still drive, <laughs> right? Like, there's lots of things that are complicated but, but are quite useful. And I don't have any problem, Alex, either. If someone says, hey, wait a second, Carlos Gomez, he's a seven-win player, or say Mookie Betts last year was a six-win player, I'm not buying that. I'm fine with that. If you want to question it and think, hey, I think they're overrating his defense. 
I think his base running is a bit skewed. I think there's, you know, whatever you want to think, if you want to question it, absolutely. There's lots of things to question, but at least forces you to question and confront it that, huh, there might be something else going on here. And in the past few years, players like Carlos Gomez, Alex Gordon, Jason Hayward, um, it is war has forced us to think of those guys as some of the top players in the game well before anybody was thinking it. Now we think it, and it is because of that stat. You have written at length about that in your book that is coming out this summer, and this is your first book? Yes, it is. Now, yeah, what was that day. like? Yeah. How, how, what was writing a book like? Um, it was a great learning process. Um, I, I went into it um, looking to write on, on sabermetrics, the sabermetric revolution, and it then evolved to you know the next step. What's the next question? And that's why don't we accept good information, not just as baseball people, but as humans. Interesting. You know, baseball, baseball is a good laboratory for that because you get results all the time. So I started to look into that, and, and there's a bunch of answers, and I, I answer them in the book, but I'll just give you an example of we all have to wonder like why there's lag time in teams or individuals going for a competitive advantage. Uh, the live ball was introduced in 1909. The live ball era began in 1920. Uh, the first relief pitcher, relief ace, was used very effectively in the 1924 World Series. Furple Marbury for the Washington Senators. We didn't see another like big-time relief ace dominate until the late 1940s, and still it had a ways to evolve. So that took another 20 years. The Boudreaux shift did a number on Ted Williams in 1946 in the World Series and in the regular season. Real, the, the best hitter in baseball was severely limited by the Ted Williams or Lou Boudreaux shift. And then mass shifting came to Major League Baseball in 2012 or 2013. <laughs> a long time. Sabermetrics came about in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Teams started really go, diving in deep into that in the early 2000s. So there's always this lag time of, you know, anywhere from... 15 to 70 years in teams and in, in, in the most, in probably the most competitive cauldron of American culture, you know, out on a baseball field where guys are killing themselves for an advantage. Teams are working so hard all the time up until players are actually putting hormones into their bodies to get better. They'll do anything to win, do anything to take an advantage of their opponents. And yet when good information comes their way, we, what have we done as humans? Not just ballplayers, teams, humans. We've rejected it. Why? And there are, there are answers for this, as to our, and it shows you the human nature of all of us and the herd mentality that we have and would be instructive once you acknowledge that. Look all across the landscape now and say to yourself, where are we not taking advantage now? Where are the lessons being taught us right now that we're not taking advantage of and we won't for another 20 years? That can be jumped on right now. Thanks for listening to Top Stock, and we hope you hear us again soon. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Audioboom, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and you can find us on Twitter at Top Stock. If you have any questions or comments or would like to tell us your collecting story on a future episode, email us at topstock at tops.com. Special thanks goes to Clay Laraski, Leanne Minutoli, Susan LeJudai, Kevin Moody, Chris Vaccaro, Mark Von Olin, and Brian Kenny. This has been Episode 32 of Top Stock.